Welcome to the podcast. I'm Brett Tomlinson, and my guest this month is Pulitzer Prize winning columnist George F. Will of the graduate class of 1968. In addition to writing a nationally syndicated column twice a week for more than four decades, he is the author of more than a dozen books about politics and about his other favorite topic,、uh, baseball. He received Princeton's James Madison Medal, the highest honor for graduate alumni, in 1992. George Will, thank you for joining me. Glad to be with you.、Um, we're, we're speaking a week after the midterm elections, and and there's much to discuss in in politics. But I wanted to begin just with a bit about your your Princeton experience.、Um, uh, you are the son of a philosophy professor. You came to Princeton to pursue a a PhD in the Politics department.、Uh, as a student, did you have an academic career in mind, or did you know from the start that that you wanted to be in Washington? I no, I did have an academic career in mind. In fact,、uh, I came to Princeton from Oxford, where I'd spent two years. And when leaving Oxford, I wasn't clear whether I wanted to be a lawyer or an academic. So I applied to law school and to Princeton. And I chose Princeton. I sometimes think because it was midway between two National League baseball cities, Philadelphia <laughs> and New York.、Uh, otherwise, I'd be a retired lawyer today.、Uh, but in fact,、uh, I went, got the PhD, went to teach first at Michigan State and then the University of Toronto, intending to have a lifelong career in academia. But in September 1969, Everett Dirksen, Illinois senator, Republican. Leader of the Republicans died in the Senate, and they shuffled the Republican leadership. And a Colorado senator, of whom I'd never heard, was elected third-ranking Republican chairman of the Policy Committee. His name is Gordon Hallett, and he said, "I want to hire a Republican academic to write for me." Well, this was the late '60s, and there weren't any Republican academics except me, and I was in Canada. But through serendipity, he heard about me. I went to Washington, and、uh, like a lot of people who go to Washington, I never left. <laughs> and, and graduate students、uh, often have very close relationships with the faculty.、Uh, did you have trouble finding a, a mentor? As, as you mentioned, there weren't many、uh, Republican academics. Who were your, your mentors at Princeton? Well, I, I took courses with、uh, Stan Kelly, specialized in American. Parties and politics.、Uh, Alpheus Thomas Mason, great constitutional law、uh, professor, a biographer of a number of people. I think Harlan Fiske Stone, and I know William Howard Taft.、Uh, and I've I've drawn upon that because I write more about legal matters than、uh, other columnists do, and and almost than any other topic that I write about. Michael Walzer in political philosophy was here. Uh, Bill Beeney, who later went to the University of Denver and also、uh, dealt with courts and constitutional law, as did Walter Murphy. So I, I had a, lo- a lot of、uh, uh, professors,、uh, all of whom uh, uh, I still think of fondly.、Mm-hmm. And at a relatively young age, you began editing National Review, and 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 you joined the Washington Post as a, a columnist.、Uh, Journalism has changed quite a bit in the in the interim, but but it seems like your routine has not changed that dramatically as a columnist.、Uh, what's changed for you, and and what's remained the same? Well, as、uh, I 
near the end of three years with uh, my senator, which is all the time I wanted to spend on the Senate staff, I called Bill Buckley, for whom I'd written a few things, and I said, you need, for the first time, to have a Washington editor of National Review. And Bill essentially said, you're right, I do, and you're it. That's sort of the way Bill made decisions. He sort of collected young people he thought were promising. So I began doing that, and at exactly the same time, uh, Vice President Agnew, uh, Mr. Nixon's vice president, had been crashing around the country complaining about the liberal media. He was really among the first to really make an issue of this, uh, and particularly the absence, he thought, of conservatives' voices on the nation's newspaper's op-ed pages. So there was a scramble on to find conservatives. Uh, so as I was starting with National Review, Three of us, Pat Buchanan and George Will and Bill Sapphire, all started columns at the same time. Uh, Sapphire, who'd been a speechwriter, high-profile member of the Nixon White House, was the star of our little trio. And the Washington Post and the New York Times competed for Sapphire. The Times won, and the Post settled for me. That's how it worked out. Uh, So the bias in the media was a live issue 10 years before CNN was founded. Uh, It was, of course, the coming of cable television and sort of sectarian, highly charged, ideologically honed broadcast uh, television entities that uh, brought us to our current understanding of partisan journalism. Do you find yourself... uh approaching columns differently or, or, or choosing topics differently today than, than you did back then? Well, I do. I think I, I write more about uh, complicated matters than I used to. I write more about, uh, as I say, Supreme Court issues, you know, constitutional law issues, because I was trained as a political philosopher. I retain my interest in that. And the more I study American history and current events, the more I'm convinced that we do, as a nation, our political philosophy in Supreme Court arguments, that is, in arguing about the enumerated powers of the government, uh, what rights are natural, what rights are retained by the people, all of that. The the founders' uh, philosophy, as it was expressed in the Declaration, in the bright light of which the Constitution should, in my judgment, be construed. As I mentioned at the beginning, we're, we're speaking after the midterm elections and before the start of the, the next con- congressional session. Uh, the broad strokes of the political landscape are in place for the next two years. Republicans will continue to have their majority in the Senate. Democrats will set the agenda in the House. Uh, obviously, President Donald Trump in the White House, you've been pretty adamant that Congress has not exercised its constitutional powers in the first two years of this presidential administration, that it's been uh, too deferential to the president. Do you expect the divided Congress to to be more effective? Uh, No, but I think they'll try, and that will be progress. The Congress has been voluntarily ceding powers to the executive since the 1930s. It's a bipartisan sin on the part of Congress. In fact, there seems to be we everyone clamors for bipartisanship. Uh, I think often by 
what we see that's bipartisan is even worse than the partisanship. There is a bipartisan reflex on the part of both parties to cede power to presidents of both parties. Uh, that way, Congress gets out from under the burden of legislating, gets out from under the burden of making difficult choices. Take trade, for example. Uh, President Trump has vast discretion to impose tariffs, which are taxes. Now, let's think about that. The president unilaterally imposing taxes under discretion granted him by Congress to regulate uh, trade with other nations. It's uh, disgraceful. It is uh, ignoring the many reasons why the framers, in their wisdom, made Congress Article One, the first branch of government. Uh, it is my hope that the Democrats, who have been the worst uh, offenders in celebrating the modern presidency from Roosevelt on, that the Democrats, now that all they have is the House of Representatives, will rediscover, as James Madison, good Princetonian, wanted them to discover, institutional interests and institutional pride and institutional jealousy in defending the prerogatives of where they sit. The president's defenders it seems uh, point first or, or, or always point first to the economy. You can't argue with the economy, but you've, you've taken issue with this as well. And in particular, the extraordinary federal deficits in a time of, of full employment. Uh, what do you see as the, the, the long-term consequences of the, the current spending policy? <laughs> That's a good question. Uh, the answer is we have no idea because no one has ever done anything like what we are about to do. What we are about to do is walk into the next recession, not if it comes, when it comes. I mean, if Mr. Trump had outlawed and banished forever the business cycle, his native modesty would not have prevented him from mentioning it. So assuming that we're not going to have an expansion forever, assuming that a contraction will come, knowing that the average post-war expansion has lasted about 58 months, and the current one that began in June 2009 is twice that old. What we're going to learn is what happens when you enter, enter a recession with trillion-dollar budget deficits and go from there. I mean, it's, it's, it's going to be, uh, to say no more, stimulating and interesting. Yeah, there's not, not much of a, a place where you can go from that. No, <laughs> <laughs> at least historically. Um, okay, speaking broadly, so you've you've been a, a devoted conservative voice who who famously left the the Republican Party before the uh, 2016 presidential election. You, you advocated for voting out the GOP in in 2018. Uh, as you look at the Republican Party today. Do you see any signs of promise and any leaders who could emerge who, who might make you feel more aligned with, with its agenda again? Well, I'll give you one. I, I voted, I wrote in the name of Senator Ben Sass, the first-term Nebraska senator, uh, as uh, my presidential vote in 2016. Uh, Pat Moynihan was uh, senator from New York, My was my, for four terms, was my closest friend in Washington. And when Ben Sass was elected to the Senate, his one request was that he be allowed to use the desk of the late Pat Moynihan. Uh, so there are a few folks around like uh, uh, 
Ben Sass, who could be the building blocks of a new and better Republican Party. I'm not terribly hopeful of that because it's not clear to me that Ben Sass will run for a second term. He finds life in the Senate uh, unsatisfying, as almost any thoughtful and intelligent person would, because the Senate does very little. Uh, so, uh, and if he runs again, he'll be primaried in Nebraska and might lose. So it, it's a thin reed on which to lean, but there are people like that. And and, and what is it about Ben Sass that, that inspires hope in, in you? Well, he's a Yale PhD and in history and a former university president of a small university whose fortunes were sagging and he turned them around in, in Nebraska. Uh, thoughtful. He's, the, he's written two books during his first term. Uh, I once said of Pat Moynihan that while he was in the Senate, he wrote more books than his colleagues had read. And I think uh, Ben Sass is on his way to emulating Moynihan in that regard. A uh, thoughtful man who sees problems in the, in the, in the light of history. I've uh, often said... Uh, more than half seriously, that when I'm dictator of the country, I'm the only permissible college major is going to be history. So we don't have to keep reinventing the wheel. Uh, of course, the, the concerns that you've written about uh, with, with the president in particular and, and the concerns that a lot of Americans have beyond uh, specific policy points point to the, the larger issue of our political culture. Um, what, in your mind, is the prescription for remedying this 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 culture that that seems, you know, so toxic and so uh, so bitter, uh, particularly in the in the last few years? Well, what you need is someone with not just a different but almost the opposite temperament and taste and value. I write about this president much less than almost all other columnists do. A, because I think he's the, the president is intensely boring. He has one pedal on the organ, and he works it all the time, and we've seen the act, and there's just not much more to be said by way of disapproval. The problem is you can't unring a bell, and you can't unsay the things he has said and continues to say daily. The... Uh, childhood, childish schoolyard taunts and the indifference to facts and all the rest. Uh, again, we're in, we're in uncharted territory. We've never had anyone do this for four years, let alone eight, which it could be. Uh, so we don't know uh, how you correct for this. But given the axiom that you can't unring a bell, the effect will be out there. And what will be required is someone who comes along who's calm and quiet and not angry and who just says to the country, uh, take a deep breath, uh, simmer down, and maybe repeat the words from, I guess, the penultimate paragraph of Lincoln's first inaugural address when speaking to a nation where seven states had already voted to secede, he said, we are not, we are not enemies. We must not be enemies. And, uh, begin to reconstruct a, a more uh, civilized vocabulary. Some will argue that the persona of the president is exactly what his supporters, you know, have wanted all along, that he, his behavior in 
debates and at rallies is, is exactly what he's what he's brought into the White House. Do, do, you, do you buy that idea that this is what voters kind of signed on for when they ticked that box for Trump in, in 2016? Or, or, or do you think the voters, by and large, expected something different? No, I don't think voters ex- expected different. I think there's a group of voters who expected that he would become more presidential when he became president. I think there was another cohort of voters who said uh, he's a mess, but so is his opponent. Remember, before 2016, we had never had a single presidential nominee who, entering the general election season in the autumn, had higher disapproval than approval ratings. In 2016, we had two of them. Uh, Hillary Clinton may have been the only biped on the planet that Donald Trump could have beaten. And, of course, but for 70 8,000 votes spread over Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania, he wouldn't have beaten her. And in any case, beating her, he lost the popular vote by about five, more than five times more than Al Gore beat uh, George W. Bush. There is, however, a significant, and we're talking uh, tens of millions of Americans who like what he does, where, where, what he looks like, and how he sounds. We just have to face that. They, they, the persona isn't ancillary. The persona is the point for them, that he's being naughty and he's being politically incorrect and he's overturning norms and he's not behaving like the dreaded elites and all the rest. Uh, so uh, I, I think we have to distinguish those groups. But one of the groups is, in fact, delighted with the way he behaves. Now, I've been focusing on, on life inside the Beltway, but, but one of the great advantages of being a, a columnist is that you have discretion to take on all topics. And I, I look at uh, the last few months, even during this election season, I see you writing about uh, criminal justice and college sports and social isolation and, and, and all sorts of things. Uh, one issue that, that seems to come up fairly often in your column, and I, I've heard you speak about this at Princeton uh, several years ago, is intellectual life on, on college campuses and, and the sort of uh, marketplace of ideas. Um, what concerns you about campus culture today, not, not necessarily Princeton, but just colleges in general, and, and, and what changes would you like to see in a, in a perfect world? Well, what concerns me is that universities are uh, ingesting young people, many of whom have been raised by over-attentive, over-protective parents who then become helicopter parents hovering over their children even when they go to college. And these children have been protected from the sharp edges of life, including disagreements and the need to negotiate with their peers their own accommodations. And they arrive on campus almost cultivating a cult of fragility, hence safe spaces and trigger warnings and worrying about microaggressions and all, all the rest. And universities fall into all too easily and all too eagerly the role of therapeutic institutions that they are to protect and heal and cosset these young people rather than setting about to use the four years to make them constructively uncomfortable by having them encounter different ideas and different ways of looking at the world. Uh, Princeton, I think, has been remarkably successful in resisting uh, these degradations. But these degradations are uh, 
it's astonishing. The reason I write about it so much is this. It took us 800 years in the Western world to evolve through thickets of governmental and ecclesiastical interference what are today the great research universities. Uh, mostly in the United States, we have our disproportionate share, but uh, in England, Oxford, uh, and, and Cambridge, and elsewhere. Uh, and what it took 800 years to protect and perfect can be dissipated in a generation of bad academic leadership. Uh, these are fragile institutions and a whole lot easier to knock down uh, than they were to build up and preserve. That's what worries me. Um, sh shifting gears for just one final topic, as I'm sure many of our listeners know, you are a longtime Chicago Cubs fan. Uh, in fact, I've read that, that you said your choice as a young boy in Illinois to, to cheer for the Cubs instead of the Cardinals may have led to, to you becoming a conservative. Uh, how are you coping with the new reality of Cubs baseball, a, a, a World Series champion and a playoff team in the last four seasons? Uh, I mean, they're not the Yankees yet, but uh, they're beginning to have that very Yankee-like expectation of being in the playoffs every year. Uh, have, have you come to terms with this? Well, I have. I, I know that losing is supposed to build character, but as a Cub fan through all those lean years, I developed quite enough character, thank you. Now I want to be spoiled rotten by the experience of excessive winning. And uh, I'll, t I'll take whatever damage that does to my character. <laughs> uh, well, George, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. I enjoyed it. it. Thanks for having me. George Will is a syndicated columnist and author whose books include Men at Work, The Craft of Baseball, and A Nice Little Place on the North Side about Chicago's Wrigley Field. In November, he was selected to deliver the baccalaureate address for Princeton's class of 2019. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe in iTunes. You can find the feed at bit.ly slash podcast. That's B-I-T dot L-Y slash P-A-W-C-A-S-T. This interview was recorded with help from Dan Kearns at the Princeton Broadcast Center. Thanks, Dan. The music is licensed from First Com Music.